Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Bee Podcast. My name is Stuart Ratcliffe. I'm a beekeeper in southern Indiana. This is a beekeeping and agricultural-centered podcast. I have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash thinkingbeepodcast. And on there, I actually have a tab where you can listen to these episodes and download them without having to have a SoundCloud account. And so that's something I've added on there recently. So uh, be sure to check that out and like the page and share it. And if you enjoyed this podcast, consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash thinkingbee. And so you can even donate a dollar a month, and that will get you into the, the exclusive Thinking Bee podcast group page on Facebook. And there you'll receive updates on which guests I'm going to be interviewing in the future, and if you have any questions you want me to ask them, or or if you have any questions or topics you want me to discuss on my questions and answers segment. And uh, you'll get to help me kind of steer the direction of this podcast and and make suggestions on what I should add or or do differently. And some ideas I've had are having a live group chat and doing some video segments where I go through some of the stuff I do in my apiary or someone else's apiary. And so I, I just want your help with that. So I'll put the link to Patreon in the description. My guest today is Les Crowder, and he is a top bar beekeeper and has a more natural approach to beekeeping. And he's the author of the book, Top Bar Beekeeping, Organic Practices for Honeybee Health. And he also has a DVD on some of his management techniques. And so here's my talk with Les Crowder. I follow you a little bit on Facebook, and um, I think you primarily have been beekeeping in New Mexico, but I think you've done a little bit of traveling um, recently. I think you went to California for a little bit, and then now you're in Texas, and maybe you, I think you went to Jamaica. Has has your traveling been beekeeping related? Yeah, most of my... Most of my everything I do is kind of beekeeping related, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm in Texas now. I'm staying with some friends who do some beekeeping teaching as well, and I'm um, going through some kind of medical situation. But I'm trying to get back on, you know, into. I'm teaching a class tomorrow and Sunday. Um, we're going to build beehives Sunday. Oh, okay. Uh, what, what all kinds of classes uh, do you teach? Um, mainly, you know, I, I teach a class tomorrow that's going to be just sort of how to, to make our beekeeping um, better Im- imitate the, or better um, work with the bee biology as opposed to chemistry. Yeah, I teach. Yeah, trying to use um, our knowledge of biology and and learn from them what they want us to do as much as possible. And um, I certainly generally always advocate no toxic um, treatments for bees. And mostly I teach top bar beekeeping. I have kept bees in Langstrothize for many years. I don't think there's anything per se wrong with a Langstrothize. I would... Uh, now where I am, they have both Langstroth and Top Bar Hives. And every time I see a frame, I remember why I don't like frames. Yeah. But um, they're just so delicate and problematic. But um, 
But, I, you know, there are people that do a good job that um, frame dies, and it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, it, do you think it's um, a matter of more of the foundation, or do you think it's the actual frame, the idea of the frame itself? that, that causes Yeah. You know, I feel like the foundation is a problem. There are foundationless lines of hives, and I think that's a good improvement. Um, but then the frame itself is very delicate, and there's room. It's hard to get at least a few combs out without crushing these, and um, and then they need to be constantly renewed anyway. Yeah. So I find it's just so much easier just to not have to mess with the frame. Today, um, my son and I built, well, we cut out 10, 10 hives, top bar hives, and we cut um, about 400 top bars. Yeah. So, you know, compared to making frames, it's just about impossible, you know. And we used all scrap lumber, so... That's kind of a nice feeling to see a bunch of fence tickets that somebody's going to burn and say, I'll take them and I'll make 400 top bars. And those top bars are going to last for years, even though they're a little bit rough and they're old. These are going to propolize them and they're only going to hold a few pounds. Yeah. And they'll last for many years. So. Yeah. The uh, the bees aren't too picky as far as the uh, the the quality of wood, I, I suppose, in, in some circumstances. But, yeah, I watched your your DVD, your video on top bar beekeeping and, you know, saw a lot of advantages to top bars. You know, I, I personally have Langstroth hives, but I would like to have some top bar hives sometime. But just, just kind of like what you were talking about as you're pulling out a top bar, the, um, the space between the the combs and the sides of the hive, you know, become greater and greater. And so you're a lot less likely to crush bees that way. But yeah. And then, uh, definitely the cost wise and kind of using what you have is, uh, you know, the bees seem to do really well in that style of, uh, hive. Yeah. You know, so these hives that I built today, I'm going to guess that they're going to, they cost me in materials about $8, no, $12. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty, pretty cheap hive. Yeah, that's probably about the cost of a single box in some cases for a length. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I kind of like, I kind of like your approach to, I guess, beekeeping in general. It's, um, you know, kind of that, holistic uh kind of looking at the big picture kind of attitude is there um a certain book that you've read or that you read or a certain you know inspiring beekeeper that kind of motivated you to kind of go this route or was it more of a self-realization well you know when i was a kid my my grandfather was an organic gardener and uh, I just didn't ever like the idea of giving bees antibiotics. And then when the mites came, the miticides, as soon as the mites came, people said, oh, you have to use the, the miticides. I felt like, well, that's putting an insecticide in the beehive. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. And, um, of course, I lost a lot of bees at first, you know, to the mites. 
But no, by long we got to where we were able to read these that were my resistance. Um, you know, Tom Seeley's books on the biology of bees mm-hmm. were, were always inspiring to me. Um, Mark Winston had a book, just uh, Honeybee Biology, and Tom Seeley had one called Honeybee the Ecology of Honeybees, or Honeybee Ecology, I forget. And I was always interested in bees in their natural state. Um, when they weren't being kept, you know, what would they do if they could run their own affairs? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I kind of have this idea or kind of that I'm playing with, that I've been playing with in my head, you know, called, um, I guess it's kind of like meeting the bees halfway, you know, kind of looking at the two opposite ends of the spectrum, you know, on the one side we have bees that are kept in square boxes that are grown to massive populations and they're pumped with chemicals and manipulated and and fed sugar water. And, and then on the other side you have, you know, maybe a, a, a wild colony that's in a, you know, 40 liter size cavity and swarming three or four times a year and and you just you know kind of like looking at you know how can we meet the bees halfway and and what can we learn from them in their natural state and i think the closer we get to what the bees are doing naturally you know i think it it only makes it less stressful for them uh yeah that's a good thought of meeting them halfway. I like that approach. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so you, you're in Texas now, and um, I think you were you weren't planning on moving your bees with you. Are you are you kind of focused on on teaching right now, or are you planning on building up your apiary again? Yeah, I want to go ahead and start building back up my apiary. Um, I'll probably just get bees from here because uh, the bees here are definitely slightly Africanized, and yeah. they're they're good bees, but they're faster, they're more tropical than the bees I was raising in Northern California, and I don't think my bees would do very well here. Yeah. They're just not the same climate. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, yeah, I've been I've been trying to do a lot of research on you know how bees that adapt and some of the studies on how, you know, a local population seems to do much better than an imported population. Or, and it seems like there's a lot of evidence in favor of, of bees actually being able to adapt over time. And so that's something I'm trying to teach more about and learn more about myself. Uh, yeah. You know, work, um, Honeybee Ecology, he kind of explains the differences between the tropical bees and the temperate climate bees. And obviously, temperate climate bees need to get ready for a long, intense winter. And so they're going to be much less prone to swarm because they don't want to swarm so much that they can't any of them survive. Whereas in the tropics, swarming is a lot more free because there's Often there's something blooming most of the year, and there isn't a big winter to try to get to. There may be a dearth at some point, but um, there's often even some flowers during the dearth. Yeah. 
So that inspired me to realize that you know, we have these in the United States that came from all over the world, and they're kind of all mixed up. But if they get to find their equilibrium wherever they are, here in Austin, it's rarely freezes. And there's some, they have a summer dearth and then a bit of a winter dearth. But it's, you can imagine that bees, a very different kind of bee would do well here than a bee that's from northern Germany or from really cold mountainous areas. So, um, and the Africanized bee is doing quite well here. Yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, you know, we categorize uh, Apis mellifera into subspecies for a reason, I think, and and I don't think we can really expect to ship bees off from all over uh, the South and California and expect them to do well in a different climate. You know, it takes a different bee or different combinations of bee uh, to really be optimal for that condition. But yeah, the, I mean, people work Africanized bees, you know, in Mexico and there's commercial operations with all Africanized bees. So I don't know why it wouldn't be able to be done in, uh, the U S. You know, in, in Brazil, they've had them for almost 60 years now and they've got a very workable strain that is very, you know, much calmer than the initial swarms were. Oh, and, yeah. um, yeah, so they wouldn't go. Many of the Brazilian beekeepers would not go back to European bees because they don't do as well in their tropical climate. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah, that makes makes sense. Um, you know, I like what you know. Randy Oliver calls bees. Uh, you know, they're almost plastic in a way because there's so many different subspecies and and different phenotypes and behaviors and you can really there's a reason why bees are pretty much present everywhere where people where people can exist so uh that's just really fascinating creatures in that way but I, i've got some questions from some people i kind of want to get make sure we get through and so uh have you ever encountered American Falbrood? And if you have, you know, or if you did, what what would you do in that case? Well, when I was in my teens, I started keeping bees. And somewhere, you know, around 18 or so, I had a hive that was, had American Falbrood. And I read about it and realized what it was. And then the book said to use antibiotics. So I went and bought the antibiotics, and I used them a little bit. And then I got to thinking, I just didn't like it. I didn't like, why do we need these? Why do bees need antibiotics? The Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians, they all kept bees, and they didn't even have antibiotics. And then I read some research, first of all, from Dr. Albert J. Cox, way back. He's passed away now, but... um he showed that old comb in the brood nest increased um, brood disease. And that made sense to me that, you know, they, a larvae bee never really defecates while it's eating and growing because it, it basically the food is deposited on the floor of the cell and they swirl around and eat it. And that sort of their cell is their dinner plate. 
and if they approved it, they'd be eating their own excrement. So when the larvae straightens out, stops eating, and gets ready to spin its cocoon, and its tail is down and its head is up, then it defecates slightly, a little bit. Not very, it never defecates very much because its food is so pure. But then it spins its cocoon over the defecation, and then it metamorphizes and, and emerges. And then a newbie is born in that cell. And what he showed was that over time, the cells become, the, the comb itself becomes um, more and more of a haven for that deleterious or bad bacteria and fungus. So he recommended culling the old combs from your brood nest every three to five years. And at the time I had Langstroth hives, and that was a lot of work to lift, you know, get the combs out, scrape the wax out of them, put new foundation in them. Usually you'd repair the frames because they're falling apart, and then put them back in and get them to drum up again. So, so that was one thing. Steve Tabor um, was alive in those days, and he was writing articles in the American Bee Journal stating that you could raise bees that were um, disease-resistant. So that's what I started doing is I started working on raising bees that were disease-resistant. And basically what you do there is you... I used to inspect any bees for New Mexico Department of Agriculture, so I saw lots of fowlbrew. Mm. And I had plenty of it in my own bees on occasion. And um, I would just reclaim whenever there was a problem. Mm. If, if I saw either American or European, didn't, I didn't really care what it was. But then I'd just try a new queen, maybe get rid of some of the older combs in the brood nest, and then keep them on as clean a comb as possible. And usually I'd find that I could um, strain it out pretty easily. Yeah, yeah. There's. It's interesting how certain pathogens and diseases are uh, passed from the queen to the egg and, and can infect their offspring that way. Um, something I'd like to do some, I guess maybe you would know, but, you know, kind of how do wild bees, I guess, uh, renew their comb? Do they need to wait for the colony to die out and then have wax moths and mice destroy the wax and then a new colony moves in and builds new comb? Uh, well, you know, I don't know. I think in some places, some cases, they may abscond. Oh, yeah. you know, or, or when they swarm, they one leaves and the one that stays in behind has to deal with it. I've also seen hives in walls when I was a kid that I would be removing them to take them out of somebody's shed, and I noticed that there was a section of old black comb up at the top that wax moths were eating up, and the hive had very healthy brood. And it was a powerful hive, you know, yeah. hundreds and uh, thousands and thousands of bees. And it, it, it looked to me like they were letting the wax moth eat mm. that section of, of the hive. And then that they would go back and clean it up and then build a new comb in the empty space. Wow. Yeah, that, that's, re that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I remember a cutout that I did, and, and the comb that I cut out was really dark and black and and I put the the bees in the comb in a box and then I added another box 
on top, you know, to let them expand. And they moved up into that new box and left all of that old black comb, and they didn't even touch it. And they just built mm-hmm. a new comb. So I think there's something yeah. to be said about about changing comb out. And uh, you know, I'm surprised when I hear a certain you know commercial beekeepers who have combs that are you know decades old, and I'm just surprised that they haven't recycled them out. Uh, you know, often, but. You know, I was at a meeting, and Dr. Bob Robert Danka from, I believe he's at... Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know where he is exactly now. But, uh, yeah, he was recommending, he said, the old comb is bad for your bees, it slows down brood rearing, and nowadays it's contaminated with oil-soluble toxins, including apistan oil, or if we all made from apistan or that beekeepers put in and he recommended culling the old comb and then there was a beekeeper there and who was sitting right beside me actually and he slammed down his fist and he yelled said now wait a minute I used Apistan like you told me I alternated with Kumafest like you guys told us and I I've been using my same comb for years and years and now you're telling me that I've been poisoning my bees and that I need to get rid of my own, all my old comb. Mm. Well, I have 10,000 hives. Oh, wow. I have about 50,000 combs. Oh. <laughs> um, I can't afford to replace my comb. It's too much work. It's too much money. Mm. And I thought, wow, you know, that's, I totally understand what he's saying. Yeah. And I'm glad I don't have 10,000 hives that, I would have to think about re- re- you know, constantly go get a new comb into all the time. But that's really why I first started experimenting with topper hives, because I realized that I could snap it off, throw it in, well, once the bees have hatched out and the honey's out of it, throw it in a silver melter, and it wouldn't cost me anything or even hardly any labor to get a new comb in the hive. Yeah, yeah, and that's... that's uh... One of the reasons I'm going back to foundationless, I think. I, I, I When I first started out, I started out foundationless, you know, in Langstroth frames. And then um, I moved on to wooden frames with plastic foundation. And uh, I actually used some all-plastic frames, and they just didn't seem to like those frames for some reason. And then I moved yeah. to the wooden frames with plastic foundation, and it it does a, a decent job. Um, but from my experience, when I first started with foundationless frames, I I know that they build much faster without foundation than they do on plastic foundation or maybe even wax foundation. And then uh, you know, and it'll just be much easier for me to clean out my comb and uh, harvest wax and let them build cells they w- the way they want to build them. And, and I, I, I know, you know, I want more drones too in my, in my hives. I'm, I'm, I'm raising Queens now. And, you know, I, I know one reason for the foundation was to kind of cut down on drones, but you know, we need drones. I think that's something that a lot of people aren't, Talking about, uh, yeah, you, you know, I was at a meeting in California, and 
a woman there saying, well, so you just let your bees build their own comb. I said, yeah. And she said, so they'll build drone comb. I said, they sometimes do. They sometimes build two or three solid combs of pure drone comb. Well, drones don't make any honey. And uh, it occurred to me, you know, I don't know why they want all those drones, but I assume that they're not stupid. That yeah. they don't, they're not just so stupid that they don't realize, oh, we shouldn't be raising all these drones. And they must have a reason. And at any rate, they're not telling me what size shoes I should wear or who I should hang out with or whatever. So why should I be telling them yeah. they, they shouldn't have drones? I don't know why they went out in a perfectly healthy hive, you know, once drones. I don't know, but it doesn't seem to hurt. Usually the hives, the biggest hives, have the most drones and make the most honey. I can't really say that they seem to be bad for honey production. I recognize that they don't contribute to making it that I, in any way that I'm aware of. Yeah. But I, I sometimes call myself the permissive beekeeper. I figure, you know, let them do what they want. Yeah. Yeah, that, that really makes sense. Um, another question was, do, do um, top our hives overwinter well in, in northern climates or colder climates? Do you know of any, of many top bar beekeepers that do well in in colder climates? Does it matter? Well, you know, I, I've overwintered in northern New Mexico where we got down to 25 below zero and we're regularly down to 15 and 10 below zero. I know top bar beekeepers in Canada um, and they, they overwinter. And um, so personally, I don't think that this top bar hive is any less capable of overwintering. I think that they're like the Canadian beekeepers use relatively thin wooden top bars and then they put a lot of hay over the top bars. Mm. Not plastic. Hey, something that can absorb moisture. Oh, okay. And, and then I cover over that, you know, to keep the melting snow out of the hay. But um, that kind of goes back to the old Russian, what they call the Russian lawn box. That the Russians and a lot of the Soviet Union beekeepers used in the in the days of the Soviet times, and that was a horizontal frame dive. And they put the honey on the sides, kept the brood in the middle, and it was just a long horizontal box. Oh. They didn't stack it. And they put a pillow on top. They called it the pillow. It was canvas, just a, a fold of canvas, was stuffed with hay, and then canvas over it. And then often whatever they could come up with to shed water on top of that. Mm. And... um and they felt that the pillow was like a blanket that would keep them warm and absorb moisture that could have come up through the, the even the slightly um, fertilized wood. And they overwintered in very cold climates in horizontal hives. Hmm. Okay. So I, I don't really think that, you know, I, I once heard Dr. Uh, Jerry Bromenshank say that they tried one in Montana, a tougher hive, and it didn't work because it was too cold. Mm. I thought, well, they only tried one, and I don't know how they did it. You know, I don't... Mm. But, I mean, I've, I've kept bees in very cold winter places. Yeah. In top rise. Yeah, that, that's 
something that happens a lot in beekeeping. People will try something once and then they make their their whole judgment based on that one time. Whereas there's a lot of different variables and, and every season is different and temperatures are different. And uh, you, you almost have to try with a lot of hives or for, you know, many years and really give it a worthwhile shot and then make your conclusion. Exactly. That's a good point that, you know, a lot of, we, and then especially if you, I mean, it was pretty obvious that Jerry didn't think top of our eyes were very good anyways. So if you don't want it to work, you can pretty easily make sure it, you know, it's pretty quick to say, oh, it didn't work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, exactly. That, that every year is different and we need to, we're, we're very, we want things, we want results very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Do do they do the bees tend to in the winter move? Um, I guess from front to back in the hive, or is there any? Um, do they cluster at the bottom of the comb and kind of move up as well? Uh, my experience is that my combs are relatively shallow; they're about seven and a half inches deep oh, okay. from the top bar to the bottom. And they generally, I, and I kind of manage them such they start the winter in the front with a bunch of honey behind them and so we eat their way back into the hive. Yeah. Okay. And what I've noticed is that they're brood-rearing much of the year it's charged, it's concentrated on the bottom of the comb. Eventually in the summer it gets to be the whole comb pretty much. And in the fall, they move up into the larger cells to do their brood rearing, mm. about right in the center of the comb, mm. or even above the center of the comb. Okay. And generally, in in top our combs, the top cells are the biggest, and the bottom cells are the smallest. So at the onset of winter, they t- seem to move their brood rearing up into the larger cells. Mm-hmm. And they and that's those are cells that were previously honey or or drones. Oh yeah, previously honey mostly. Okay, yeah, yeah. And they don't have and they lay worker in those. Yeah. Okay. Um, another question was, I guess maybe talk a little bit about um, extraction techniques or techniques to get. Um, is, is there any other technique? Other than crush and strain with the top bar hive, is there any other way that you... Uh, you know, the, the African top bar beekeepers are experimenting with um, extractors that are gentle enough to not break the combs. Um, I think that's, a, you know, whatever. I mean, whatever works for people, it's good. I generally crush and strain the combs, and I have had as many as 200 where I was filling tanks you know, I was using the 300-pound tanks and the conical strainers that they they send. They had, they'll sell you, you know, a, a, it's about a 30-gallon tank with a um, stainless steel strainer on top that's got a quarter-inch holes in it. Mm. And I would just crush the combs, pour the slurry over the into the strainer, and then let somewhere a little bit of wax would come through, but then it, it'd stop, and then... I would skin it and put that back up, and then bottle right into my retail bottle. And I found it to be easier than extracting. 
asking me what are the things when I had lice with eyes. I did, often didn't want to get my extractors set up and all sticky just for a small batch of honey. Mm. So I'd wait till there were 50 combs, or 50 supers, I should say, in order to really feel like it's worth getting the extractor all, all um, messy. And with a tubber hive, you can harvest one comb with a colander and a mixing bowl if you want. Mm. Or you can do small batches very easily. Yeah. What, was there any market for you on cut comb, or um, was it, I guess... Yeah, I sold a lot of comb, honey. Yeah. I I just would go, so when I went to a bee yard, I'd bring five-gallon buckets and an empty box that didn't have a, an entrance, oh. full of top bars with no combs in it. And then when I came to a really pretty comb, I'd brush all the bees off and put that in the box and take it back um, whole, and then the not-so-pretty combs, I would, you know, crush and put in the bucket. Mm-hmm. Um, do you care to maybe briefly talk about how you like to raise queens, or, or do, you, um, do you do a lot of queen rearing? Do you, do you simply um, just take a strong colony and then remove the queen and then start your queen cells that way, or? Well, yeah, you know, I've done all different ways, including grafting, even. But, um, and and I still probably will do some grafting here and there. But I really like just kind of daring the hive to swarm mm. and then touching it when it has built swarm cells and then separating some of the um, queen cells and put them in divides that I make up. And that way I can, uh, um, you know, kind of let them do, let them get them started themselves. Yeah. Yeah, That that's kind of something, um, a little, I guess, realization I've had fairly recently is, you know, swarms, at real swarm cells are going to be the highest quality fed cells that you can possibly get. And you can, you can get a colony to that point to where they want to swarm and they'll build really good queen cells for your, for your grafts. Um, then also, you know, what do we know about how they select their lo- their larva? You know, whereas when we're doing a graft, we're selecting the larva and, w- and if they were actually swarming, maybe they would be selecting different larvae that were, that would be, would be a better queen. And so, you know, there's right. all these it's unknown variables that the bees know, but we don't. Yeah, that's a good point. I'd never really, yeah, thought about the idea that, yeah, the larva selection, leaving it up to them might be the, the best. And, you know, some people would argue, well, you know, they're going to leave it up to ones that swarm more or whatever. But to me, it's whatever can live, you know, whatever can, can survive on its own. So that, that is a good point, yeah. So if you, what I'd often do is I'll keep them in a box with a partition in the middle. And that way, if they, it's big enough that they can survive the winter in each half, but it's not big enough that they can, you know, fill it with honey. It's, and they're definitely going to swarm a lot in a half of, in a half of a box. 
And then I just watch him. I check on him once a week. And then as soon as I see a swarm cell, I just make a divide at that point or I take the swarm cells and use them somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess one last question or this person had a couple different questions, but do you have any, uh, well, let me just start with, do you use um, screen bottom boards and maybe uh, what kind of entrances do you use? Um, I did experiment with screen bottom boards. I found that the bees, I don't think the bees liked them very much. They wanted more uh, control over the airflow. And um, so you could put a false bottom, but that makes it very complicated hives. And uh, so, no, I, I, I no longer, I discontinued all my screen bottoms. I just keep them in regular wooden bottoms. Um, my entrances, Dr. Jay Cox, the same doc, scientist that talked about, um, um, you know, recurring the combs in the bird nest, did a study once on what kind of entrances the bees liked. And he found that they liked um, fairly small entrances. He hypothesized that an, an entrance that a mouse would have a hard time fitting into. Mm -hmm. So I made mine about six inches long, but three-eighths of an inch wide or high or whatever. Yeah. And that way the uh, drones can fit in and out, queens can easily fit in and out, but a mouse would have to chew its way in. Mm. Yeah. Um, I guess... Um is there really a, I guess, standard dimension for top bars out there? Is there a mainstream design or or length and width or dimensions that way? You know, that's the one thing that's not happening with top bar hives. And it, it's kind of a shame because, like, here in Texas, there, my book has made a lot of people more or less imitate my design. Mm -hmm. And then Phil Chandler's book has made it a lot of people um, imitate his design. Yeah. And then the combs don't fit. You know, the, the top bars in a in a one of his eyes are 17 inches long. The top bars in mine are 19, mm -hmm. and so his fall down in uh, my box. You know, and uh, mine don't. You know, too wide for his box, and. Um, it's a great idea that we would standardize them, but even in New Mexico, I have a really good friend who has a slightly different design. Mm -hmm. We agree on the angle of the walls to the floor. We agree on a lot of things, and yet his is deeper, and his is just a bigger and more expensive hive. Mm. And he keeps saying, sometimes we should consolidate our design. And what he means is I should make mine like him and I say yep you're right TJ someday you should make yours like mine <laughs> and you know we I don't know when we'll ever or if we'll ever agree I kind of think we won't yeah I mean I, I guess the the initial idea is that you use what you have and make a hive out of it and so it may not be a standard but something if people are are going to you know, swap frames or something like that. Something more standard would be ideal. Do you think? Do you think the the length of a Langstroth frame is too short for a 
Top Bar Hive? No, so here in Texas, they, they, I am changing my design very slightly because okay. my top bars are 20 inches. And a, a frame, the top bar on a frame, the length of frame is 19. So I was going to have made hives just today that will accept a 19-inch frame. And I cut a bunch of 19-inch top bars. And so, you know, that way you could put them in a length with hive and get the comb started and then put them back in a top bar hive as long as they didn't build them all the way down, you know. And um, so that, I, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I've also used half barrels with plastic blue barrels. Mm, yeah. And I've just cut them in half, screwed them to um, poles, and then hung them. And uh, those took 24-inch top bars. And the bees, I didn't think the bees would like them because they're plastic and don't breathe at all. Mm-hmm. But the bees did really well in them for many years. Yeah, yeah. And well, that's super cheap. That's like a $4 hive. You know, I was buying the barrels for eight, getting two out of each barrel, and just using scrap lumber for top bars. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's just another use, you know. People don't throw away your barrels, you know. Turn them in the hives. Don't throw them away. <laughs> yeah. And then you got to watch what was in the barrels before. Oh, yeah. I, I got mine from the dairy, and some of them had fly spray, and I didn't use those. And the rest had teeth dip, and that's just an iodine salt, like what you put in the wound. Yeah. And so I used those. Yeah. Well, um, I guess we can start maybe wrapping up this conversation, but uh, something I like to ask, I'm starting to like to ask people is, you know, what do you think um, about the future of beekeeping? You know, where is it headed, do you think? Um, are the bees they seem to be getting healthier or are beekeepers getting better? What do you think about the future? Well, I've seen it change dramatically in 40 years, of course. But um, just taking New Mexico as a little um, experiment, 40 years ago, it was all men with hundreds to thousands of highs. A woman in the room was a beekeeper's keeper, a beekeeper's wife. Um, there was one exception for a little while, and then she quit coming. And then in about maybe the early 80s, mid-80s, a few more women that were actually keeping bees came in. and the larger-scale beekeepers started going out of business. And little by little, it began to shift to where now New Mexico Beekeepers Association has, instead of 20 or 30 members, it has 300. And But amongst them, there's probably as many or fewer beehives because those 20 members, one of them had 4,000 hives. And now we've got Hundreds of people, people with five, three or five or ten hives. Mm-hmm. So there's a big shift in the number of hives. It's been an urban shift. It's shifted from primarily a rural beekeeping business orientation to an urban um, homestead, you know, uh, keeping bees in, in cities. And women have moved into it in a big way. 
And um, as a matter of fact, in some places, women are the majority, in many places anymore. And so I think that's good. You know, obviously, we still keep hearing about bee losses and how they're not enough bees to pollinate. But that's with the big pollinators, the guys with, you know, anywhere from a few hundred to 10,000, 25,000 hives. And they're having a really hard time. The big industrial scale beekeeping is, and I think that they're mainly having a hard time because they're keeping bees in a, the most poisonous place in the world, and that is the place where we grow our food. That is soaked with herbicides, uh, fungicides, miticides, insecticides, and they're having a hard time. But yeah. the people, that, the small scale beekeepers, are rising dramatically. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it seems like it's going to be, um, you know, especially in regards to uh, resistance to different parasites and diseases, it's going to be the smaller scale beekeepers that can, you know, it, it's, it may not be their whole livelihood. They can kind of afford to direct bees in a more healthy and progressive uh, path and make differences on a more local scale, um, which is kind of what I'm trying to do. And yeah, that, that's a great point. And I did, because a lot of the big meetings, they kind of have this, they, there was a, sort of almost a, a look down on the hobbyists, as they said, you know. And yet some of these hobbyists, small scale beekeepers, have had these for many years just as many as, as the commercial beekeeper. And there and yet we and we can afford to lose a few bees to an experiment on my resistance. And you know, it isn't the end of our, our economics. Whereas the big guys with ten thousand hives, they've got three hundred thousand dollars in fuel bills. And they you know, gotta keep their bees as split as much as they can to get as many hives because they get paid for hive, and so they can't afford to experiment. Yeah, and it, it seems like it's slowly getting to the point where more and more people are raising their own queens and raising their own nucleus colonies, and especially in more northern envi environments, they're hopefully, hopefully it's slowly going to go in the direction where People can, local people can supply bees to nearby people instead of having to rely on packages shipped from the south or California and, and kind of going back to how bees adapt. You know, there's going to be bees are, that are raised in your own environment are, are going to do better and have less stresses than bees that are raised industrial industry-like and uh, I guess not fit really for your environment, but um, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, uh, well, Les, um, you know, thank you very much uh, for coming on here and, and talking with me, and I think a lot of people really be excited to hear everything you said. I think, I, I just really like your approach to beekeeping and and actually observing what the bees do and, and, and I guess 
kind of like said earlier, you know, meeting them halfway and, and learning from them. And I think it's just, uh, I think it's just a, a really good approach to, to make things easier on them. And, and I think everybody benefits from a approach like that. So I really hope to maybe talk to you again one day. And um, sure. so, so you got, you yeah, got some I've enjoyed time. it. I'm glad to have, I'm glad to get to talk to you. Yeah. So, you, and what, what's your website? Do you still have your website? You know, I'm getting a new website uh, that I still have to work on, and okay. it's, it's going to be called the Permissive Beekeeper. Oh, great! That's a good name. Um, and it'll be up pretty soon. Okay. All right. Well, um, yeah, I'll, I'll make sure I I'll look out for that and and share and spread the news about that. And uh, so. Good luck in Texas now, and um, thanks again. Okay, thank you. It was good talking to you. So I hope you enjoyed my talk with Les Crowder. Be sure to check out his website, ForTheLoveOfBees.com, and be sure to like and share my Facebook page. And if you're listening on iTunes, be sure to rate and review my podcast and and just let me know what you think of it, and if you have any suggestions or or have any ideas, uh, please let me know. And until next time, thanks for listening.